you were to ask someone who uh, maybe is my age or maybe a little older, or someone who, who doesn't remember history very well, um, just maybe not studied it very well, uh, what the worst day in American history would be, chances are you'd come up with, with generally one answer, right? September 11th, 2001. Or if you asked a, new, a different age group, maybe they would say D-Day. Maybe they would say some other horrible day. But there's another day, September 11th, not in 2001, but there's one that happened 224 years before that that I want to talk about this morning. It was uh, September 11th, 19, or 1777. September 11th, 1917. Look at this. I can't get dates together to save my life today. September 11th, 1777. There we go. English. I English really well sometimes. Anyways, so what was happening was, that's the day that the Battle of Brandywine happened in the American Revolution. What happened was General Sir William Howe had America, the new, you know, fledgling America, it's just a bunch of rednecks with pitchforks and shotguns, as it were, you know, against the, the military power that was England. And General Howe, for lack of a better term, beat the pants off of us in, uh, at the Battle of Brandywine. And then for 11 days, he chased American, the Americans, the patriots. He chased them all the way to, to Philadelphia. Eventually, they, they had another battle in Philadelphia. He took Philadelphia and so forth. And then he kept chasing them. October 4th, 1777, he was still chasing them, and they ran across the Delaware River to a place called Valley Forge. You might have heard of Valley Forge. That's the place where... George Washington kind of holed up for the winter and, and weathered the storm, as it were, even though all of his, most of his people either lost their lives or got sick during that winter. And General Howe didn't follow them across the river for one reason or another. And so because of that, after that winter, the Americans, you know, you know what happens in the face of turmoil, right? In the face of tragedy? It, it, it's the same thing that happened after September 11, 2001. They thought that they were going to destroy the country of America, but what it actually did for a very short time, because we seem to have forgotten the feelings back then, but I was, all right, I'm going to date myself here, and y'all are all going to laugh at me, but I was in fifth grade, no, sixth grade. And what happened was, I, re I remember the day, okay? I was sixth grade, small town Arab, Alabama, where, you know, we're rednecks and pitchforks and shotguns, and that's about it. And so someone walks up to me at my my locker and says, have you heard what's going on? And I said, no, what, what's going on? And he said, somebody has accidentally crashed a plane into some giant building in New York. And I thought, whoa, I got to see this. And so, because I was in sixth grade, I had no clue what was going on. I just knew fire, explosions, I want to see it. So anyways, we go to science class and my science class teacher had it and she's sobbing. And I, I remember walking in, and I was kind of excited. And then when I saw her, I, I realized something, something terrible has happened. Well, with those attacks, they, they were trying to tear apart America. But what it actually did, have you ever seen the pictures of streets before and after September 11, 2001? You'll see a street in, a, in small town America. It's just a bunch of houses, nice, you know, manicured lawns with curbs. All right, little insight into, into my lifestyle as a child. I thought if you lived in a, a neighborhood with curbs, you were rich. 
Okay? So they had curbs, and they had manicured lawns, and before it, they were just all normal houses. And afterwards, there was an American flag behind, in front of every single house. You, you remember this, right? The American, sales of American flags just skyrocketed after 2011, after September 11th. Well, the same thing happens in 1777 after General Howe stops. For whatever reason, he doesn't chase us across the Delaware River. And so George Washington sets up at Valley Forge and spends the summer there, or the winter there. And then that next spring, the same thing happens in the face of every single tragedy, except recently, because we're just kind of inundated with tragedies lately. I mean, just every single week, some horrible thing happens, and the news is all over it. But what happens in the face of tragedy is people usually band together, right? And the Americans made it through this winter, and then General Howe had a problem on his hand. He had a bunch of a bunch of rednecks with pitchforks and shotguns that actually thought they could win this time. It wasn't just a, we're going to fight and see if we can get some lower taxes. It was, we're going to win this. Because of that, General Howe had to, had to retire. He had to resign from his command of the British Army. And it was that time, the, the Battle of Brandywine and the months leading after that, that, that most historians believe that's kind of the turning point of the war. Britain won some, England won some wars after that, after some, uh, some battles after that. But for the most part, that was when America decided, listen, it's time we show these guys what real rednecks can do. And so, we won the war. You know, wars are lost. I, I was never in the military. I, I, you know, I just never did that. But after studying wars and history, because I'm, I'm kind of a nerd like that. You know, y'all make fun of me because I go and sit in coffee shops with preachers and talk about the grammar of the New Testament, but you can also make fun of me because I'm a history nerd. But anyways, wars are won and lost by the leadership. The people on the ground are the ones that really do the work, but if without them being told what to do, without them being united behind a leadership, it's fairly easy to lose it. 1 Peter chapter 5, the whole book of 1 Peter is a book about this turmoil, about a battle that's going on in the church. He starts off, 1 Peter chapter 1, speaking to the Christians who have been scattered. In Acts chapter 8, and you see in the subsequent verses of the stoning of Stephen, there at the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, you see the Christians have realized that it's no longer safe for us to all be in one place. After the day of Pentecost, they had stayed in Jerusalem in order to to strengthen one another and spend time with one another and so forth. And then they start realizing it's not safe for us to stay here. So they spread out. And 1 Peter is written to those people that left, okay? And they're going through more and more and more persecution. They're going through a war, as it were, for the for the church. They're, they're losing people because of persecution, but also they're losing people because they just don't have... They just don't have any backbone, and they're, they're leaving the, the Christ. They're leaving the church. And so First Peter chapter 5 talks about the leadership. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for, New American Standard Version says, sordid gain, some translations will say, not for greed of money. You're, you're not trying to make money out of this. But with eagerness, 
nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he will receive, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by, all, by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We read the last part of that chapter on a regular basis. Be aware, be alert, be sober-minded, because the, the, the devil, the adversary, the one who is against you, who's trying to make you fail, is walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we talk about all, this, all these, these you know, quibbles or jokes that, why is he walking around like a roaring lion? You know that... You know, it's pretty fairly easy to hear a lion roaring. Well, it's because he's, he's easily seen and you can see the things, but then he's also cunning and sometimes he won't, you know, we, we, we'll do a whole series on First Peter chapter 5 and the lion that is roaring that's trying to tear us apart. I want to focus on the entire context of this chapter today, okay? He says, here's how you need to work together as a congregation, as a church not just as the local congregation, but as the church in general. Here's how the church stays faithful in the light of, light of troublesome times. And that is, by one, having leaders who are leaders for Christ. And number two, having Christians who are Christians for Christ. So let's talk about the leaders. He talks about these elders here in 1 Peter chapter 5. And he says a couple things about them. First off, he says, I want to talk to the elders because I am one of them. Okay? This is different than just, you know, Paul writing to, to Timothy, First Timothy chapter 3, or to Titus two, chapter 2, and he's dealing with elders, and he's telling uh, Titus to set in order the things that are lacking in Crete, that, that it was Titus's responsibility as a preacher to move them to the point to have uh, uh, some sort of leadership in the church. It's different than... 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he's talking about how you need to encourage the leaders of the church. 1 Peter is, is an elder talking to other elders and says, here's what's going to keep the church together. All right? And he says a few things. Number one, he says, I am, a, I am your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. There are a few words in Scripture that mean elder. Sometimes we use the phrase elder, which is the phrase for the, the, the title, the role. Like you might hear, you know, somebody comes up to me and asks me, uh, where do you pastor? And I say, well, I, I don't because I don't treat milk for the sale in stores. And I don't grow any... I tried to grow some tomatoes one time and... 
for some reason, I'd get some and then something would eat half of them. I think, I really think it was the girls. You remember our girls, right? I really think Sarah was out there eating half of the tomatoes every time we grew them. But anyways, no, they say, where are you a pastor? I say, I'm not. And they say, well, hang on a second. Aren't you a preacher? Yes, I am. Well, so where do you pastor? I don't. And then I just, you know, I kind of like messing with people sometimes. You know, remember when we had King and I would tell people that I would ask people if you looked like me all the time. I just like messing with people. Okay, so anyways, there's a there's a title for places in the church like preacher or minister, evangelist, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. First Timothy. There's there's titles for things like deacons. First Timothy chapter three, where it talks about deacons. And then there's the title of an elder that is a title. That's all it is. It is a it is a name that is given to a group of men that lead a local congregation. But then you have other words in this. First Timothy, or sorry, first Peter chapter five says that I'm a fellow elder, but then he, he uses these other words like shepherd, verse number two, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. There's two words there. Shepherd and exercising oversight. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Number one, I want you to realize, elders, that, that you have to be witnesses of the sufferings of Christ. I'm writing to you, Peter, as a fellow elder and as a, suffering, uh, a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also an heir of the kingdom of God and eternity. He says, I want, I want you to remember that I'm a witness. You know, the interesting thing about having an, an eldership is that, is that those men know. I mean, you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Those qualifications, I hate calling them qualifications. They're, they're really, they're just marks of a faithful Christian man. But the qualifications, they point to a man that, that's been through the trenches. That knows the sufferings of Christ that understands what it's like to have difficulties, but also that knows how to get through them. You've heard me talk about one of my best friends. He's the preacher over in Fort Valley, Georgia. He, uh, he had a rough life before going to, to preaching school and before becoming a Christian. And I remember talking to him when, we, when he first got to school. He came a little later than me and we were sitting down, and I would talk to Norman, and, and, and we'd talk about the past and, and what he had to go through and so forth. And It's amazing to me the ability he has to relate to people because he's been through it. And Peter says, I'm a, I'm a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ. I've been in the trenches. I know what it's like. And so do you, elders. But then number two, he starts talking about these two phrases. He says, you, need, you are ones who exercise oversight, who shepherd. Elder is the name of the position, okay? Shepherd and exercising oversight, those two words there are the name of the, the job. You shepherd. You, you lead them, even though they, they, you know, listen, let's face it, sheep are not the smartest animals and sometimes Christians are not the smartest Christians. I mean, let's face it. How many of us have made really dumb decisions in our faith over the years? Peter says, 
You want to make it through persecution? You want to make it through tribulations and trials and, and difficult times in the church? You need these men who, who have been through the trenches and, and can shepherd you. And then you need men who exercise oversight. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15 says this. Say it to, see to it, sorry. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many be defiled. Now hang on a second. First Peter says you need to exercise oversight. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, I have to say that because people get mad if I tell you who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. It was Paul. Nonetheless, Paul or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews uses the exact same word. But he's not talking to elders in that. Why does Peter say you need to exercise oversight? That sounds official, doesn't it? Exercise oversight. And then Paul in Hebrews 12 says, see to it that no one, see to it is the same word as exercising oversight. How in the world do we have a position in the church on one side that is supposed to do this in an official capacity, and on the other side, Paul or whoever writes the book of Hebrews says all Christians need to do it. There again, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the marks of a faithful Christian man. We all have the responsibility to look after one another. You have the responsibility to look after the person sitting next to you and the person sitting on the other side of the building from you right now. But Peter says elders have this special responsibility. Because you know that you are not going to hold account. You're not going to be, you're not going to stand in front of Christ and him ask you, you know, how is so-and-so doing who sat on the other side of the building from you? That's not going to happen. But Christ is going to look at the elders, the person who holds that position, and say, what did you do to help so-and-so? Because, you see, that's the difference. He says you need to exercise oversight. We all have that responsibility. Every single person sitting in this room and in other rooms all over the world today have the same responsibility to make sure that each other go to heaven. But we're not going to be held accountable for that. We're not going to be held accountable for what you do. You know, even me, as the preacher, people want to throw me under the bus for being a pastor, but it's just not true. But even as the preacher, I'm not going to give account for what you do, ever. I'm going to give account for what I say when I'm up here and down there and when I tell you about this book. That's what I'm going to give account for. We're not going to give an account for each other, but elders will. So he says, I want you to exercise oversight, because you're going, to, you're going to give an account of that. But then he says something else. He says, uh, let's, let's just look at the text again. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but for with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. An elder has to be someone who, who's been there. Not just been through the trenches, but been there. Someone asks the question, can a preacher be an elder? Well, if he meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, then yes, he can be an elder. The issue is, there's something else missing there. You see, an elder is someone who comes from, out, from inside the congregation, who is, who is brought up 
as a part, who is among us, who is a part of us. And the question is always asked, can a preacher do it? Well, yeah, a preacher can do it if, if he's among them. The, the fact is, listen, I want to I commend this congregation because we've been here almost just that two and a half years now. And I, I feel like I'm one of y'all. And I feel like y'all are one of us. But the issue is that we've only been here for two and a half years now, right? And we were brought in for a specific purpose of doing exactly what I'm doing right now. An elder is a person who is among us, who's been there, who's a part of the family, and who, who understands the intricacies of each individual person because he's going, to get a, he's going to give an account of that each individual person that may slip through the cracks. I want to ask you a question. Could you write down a list of three people, not even three families, just three people, who if they weren't here next week and they never came back to Warm Springs Road again, could you write a list of three people, their names, that it would take a year or more for the majority of the people of this church to figure out that they're gone? See, that's the purpose of an elder. He has to be one who's among you. I think there's, there's benefit in the church knowing each other. But the fact is that Peter says, among you, three different times. Twice he says, among you. And once he says, those who have been allotted to your charge. So an elder is a person who is among the church, who's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, who has been through the trenches, been in the family for, a, for an extended amount of time and understands the family, understands the dynamics. Each family has different dynamics. Last night, we were at the Holdridge's house and they said, do you want to play a game? And we got the game out. We never played the game. I think it's because Rebecca might have scared him of me. I have a problem. My problem is I want you to lose. I want me to win and just destroy you, right? I love it. The reason why I'm an Alabama fan is because I can, I can go a Saturday and not worry about a football game. I love it. I love the, the feeling of when I'm playing a game, I want to, I, I want to beat you by a thousand points if I can, right? And that's because that's my family. When Becca first went to our family Christmas, she had no clue what she was getting herself into. We started playing a game. Becca left crying. And the rest of us were going, what, did we say something? We weren't mad at each other at all. She just, did, she just did not understand our family dynamic. And our family dynamic in the Snow household is, if that board game opens up, it's no longer Christmas. It's business. Right? They need to be someone who understands the dynamics of the family. But then he goes on. He says, a particular of the glory that has been revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, according to the will of God, voluntarily, verse number two, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, not for, the, for monetary gain, but with eagerness, not yet lording over you. You're, you we don't want men who, who, are, who are going to to use it as a position to get their way. We want men who, who are going to do it because they understand the position. They understand the role. They understand the tremendous 
work that's going to be involved in it. And that they're going to have to put up with the rest of us. So he says, I want you to be eager. I want you to want to do this. Now, that begs the question, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If anyone is desiring the position of an elder or a bishop or an overseer, whatever you want to call it. If anyone desires this, here's the qualifications of him. He needs to be sober. He needs to have a right mind. He needs to not be after money. He needs to have ruled his family well and be faithful and have shown himself in, in faithful service to Christ. And all of these other qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. But the first part of that says... It says, if anyone desires it, aspires to it, if anyone is reaching toward the goal, I just want to run you through something very quickly. Are you ready for this? Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm confident that this very thing, that he who began a good work in you is going to perfect it. Does that language sound familiar? First, Tim, First Peter chapter 5, the end of it. He's going to perfect us. You see, Christianity, the faith, is, a, is an onward goal of providence. And what that means is, it takes a long time to get to maturity in faith. When a, person, when a person first comes to the church and first understands the gospel, first comes to Christ and first is baptized into Christ, he does it just because he understands the ramifications if he doesn't. Now we can go through what that means and we can spend time on talking about the fact that he needs to understand the church. and he needs. To... The fact is that every single person who becomes a Christian does it for one reason. He may understand different things, but he does it for one reason. And that one reason is he doesn't want to go to hell. Period. Everything else he doesn't understand yet. He may know that Jesus died on the cross, but he doesn't understand it at all. He may know that the church is the one church, but he doesn't understand what that means. A person that becomes a Christian does it because he doesn't want to go to hell. But I'm confident, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, that the person, the one, the the, the the God, the deity, the creator of the universe that started something in you is going to perfect it. And this is what he's going to perfect. That you will, that you want to do what's right and you do what's right. You see, desire comes at a level of maturity. Don't ever think that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 is a qualification of an elder. It's a mark of maturity. Every single person, now listen, this is speaking to me too, because I don't know if, I'll, if I'd ever want to do that job. Every single man who is a member of the body of Christ will, if he works at his faith, come to the point where he desires to be an elder. I know that some of us, myself included, say I never want that job because we're not to that level of maturity yet. Because the providence of God will work to the point where we will and work for the glory of God. Philippians 2 and verse 13. And so those of us who don't want it yet, that doesn't mean we're not qualified. It means we're not mature in our faith yet. It means we have some work to do. It means that we have to man up and work on our faith and build our faith to the point that we have that maturity level. Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 4 says, Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased, you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. 
The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. That's the exact opposite of what 1 Peter chapter 5 says that an elder ought to be in the face of turmoil. You need to, you need to build them up. As an elder, you, have to, you can't domineer over them. You have to take care of the, those who have been allotted to your charge. And then finally, 1 Peter says this. Not lording over, verse number 3, over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. If you write in your Bibles, write out beside proving to be examples to the flock. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because therein lies the qualifications. The qualifications of an elder are not a checklist of can I do the job. It's not, you know, I remember when, uh, when I was in college and I was planning on being a, a music educator of some sort. I was, well, okay, that sounds really fancy. I was going to be a high school music teacher. I was going to tell kids to put the left foot first and stay in line. And that's the wrong note. And try not to hit somebody with a trumpet. That's what I was going to do. Okay. I would always look at the qualifications. And I'd say, well, I've, I've finished my master's. And so I've got to get this class done. I've got to get this class done. I've got to get this class done. And this and this and this. And then I, can, then I can be an educator. That's not what 1 Timothy 3 is. 1 Timothy 3 is a, is, a, is a proof of an example to the flock. It's a qualification of a faithful Christian. But Peter says that those qualifications of a faithful Christian, that, that, that maturity level that is seen in 1 Timothy 3, proves to be an example. Because let's face it, the adversary, the devil, is walking around like a roaring seek, uh, lion seeking whom he may devour. And Christians in the face of persecution need someone that they can look to for an example. Put yourself in the position of those Christians. You're a young Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for just a few years now. And you have a young family. And the persecution comes to Columbus. And now we are faced with the question of what are we going to do when they bust in the back door and say, are you a Christian? Yes, you're coming with me. Peter says, you need men who can stand there and say, here's how you make it through this. Follow me as I follow Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. You see, being an example to the flock is like in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Titus 2 and verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified. It means that all Christians are supposed to do this. But General Howe, General Howe, when he stopped at the base, at the, at the, the brink of, of the Delaware River and did not follow George Washington across that river, you want, you want to know why he stepped down? I mean, he was a great military leader. He could, have, he could have wiped the floor with America right then. But he didn't. And you want to know why he stepped down? Not because he didn't know how to win a battle. He, he, listen, he beat the pants off of us at Brandywine. It wasn't because he didn't know how to make an army march long distances and still fight and effectively. 
is because the people standing behind him didn't trust him anymore. Gave up when they could have won the battle right then. They could have stopped the American Revolutionary War right then. And it wouldn't have been the American Revolutionary War. It would have been, you remember that time when the colonies thought that they could beat us, but they didn't? And then that's the end of it. The reason he stepped down the next year in April is because his people didn't follow him anymore. You see, battles and wars are won and lost by leadership. And what Peter says is, if the church is going to make it through persecution, it's going to need leadership. Now, we have to be leaders for each other. But we also, we also have to be looking for the point at which we can have men who, who can be our example and prove to be an example to the flock so that when we go through persecution, because if you don't believe it's coming, you are sadly mistaken. When we go through persecution, like what the, like what the Jews put the Christians through or what the Romans put the Christians through, when we go through that, we'll have men who can say, I made it, you can follow me and lead the charge. And even if it's not persecution, we still have men who can lead the charge, who can say, just get behind me and we'll figure this out together. See, the beauty, the beauty of the church is that we are all together, but also the beauty of the church is that we, we, all, we all have differences. We all have different roles. And some of us are out front more than others. I'm going to give you an insight into the, the mind of a preacher very quickly before we end. You want to know, now this is, not, this is not an accusation by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, so don't take it as this. This is, this is the exact opposite of what happens here in my situation. But you want to know what will kill a preacher quicker than anything? When the church turns their back on him. Because we have to be working together. And that's what we're going to need when we get elders, is we're going to need to work together, stand behind them in humility, knowing that God's going to take care of it. If there's one thing that's mentioned more times in 1 Peter than anything else, it is, don't be scared. You want to convert your spouses? Don't be scared. You want to convert the world? Don't be scared. Don't be scared of the questions they ask you. Don't be scared of the persecutions they ask you. Over and over and over again, he says, don't be scared. Don't be scared about what may happen in the future. If we're ready for it, we have to be ready for it. If you need to become a Christian this morning, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you. Let us know while we do that so we can baptize you into Christ and you can become a Christian. Have your sins washed away. If you need to repent of sins, now's a perfect time to do so as well as we stand and sing.